This evening we're returning uh, back to the book of James, uh, chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17. You'll find that on page 1013, 1013, in your pew Bible if you're utilizing a pew Bible. Uh, This is God's holy and inerrant word, so as always, let us give careful attention to it as it is being read. The word of our God. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. A glorious heavenly Father, again, this is your word. This is the visible, the means that you have given us for us to grow in the image of our Lord. This is your written word. We will indeed partake of your visible word in a few. But for now, we ask that you would give us hearts that were illumined, minds that can see and hear clearly the things that you would have us to know, to hear and to see, to discern. Gross, again, we ask into the image of your son and do all to the praise of your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if anyone has been listening to me, I would say over the course of the last or past two to three years, you might recall that on several occasions I've alluded to the fact that as Christians we live in a society where a majority of the inhabitants of this nation live their lives through the grid of several different worldviews. That is how we see and interpret the world and the things we see in it as Christians We are called to live through the grid of a Christian worldview. Now, among those that are most prevalent in our culture, today there is pragmatism, which has as its central tenet, if it works, use it. Then there's hedonism, which as a worldview has as its basic principle the belief that good and evil are determined, defined in terms of pleasure and pain, Man's ultimate purpose for living is found in enjoying pleasure and avoiding pain. There's also what's known as sentimental humanism. That ism asserts or pushes the idea that man is the measure of all things. Man in himself is the ultimate norm by which all values are to be determined. He is the ultimate being and the ultimate authority, all reality and life center upon him. These definitions, you should know, comes from R.C. Sproul's book entitled Life View. In his book, he goes on to list quite a few other worldviews that are prevalent in our culture. The most impactful of all those, he asserted, however, is secularism. And why? Because it's the worldview that serves as the umbrella for all the others. Listen to what R.C. wrote concerning this particular worldview. For secularism, all life, every human value, 
every human activity must be understood in light of this present time. The secularist idol flatly denies or remains skeptical about the eternal. He either says there is no eternal, or if there is, we can know nothing about it. What matters is now, and now only. In other words, there is no God, no acknowledgement of him. Secularism, then, as a worldview, does a great job of creating the social environment that allows all the other worldviews to thrive in the current marketplace, in our cultural marketplace of ideas. All that is except Christian worldview. A worldview that not only says there is a God, but that he is central to everything. Now it needs to be said here that those of us who profess the name of Christ are not immune to the pervasive onslaught of God excluding tenants and tendencies that are swirling all around us. In fact, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we are often more influenced by these self-indulgent and God-exclusionary ways of thinking than we are by the words of life that have been given to us by the host of heaven himself. There's a book entitled Hollywood Worldviews, and it talks about the way that the worldviews in, in the world today are pushed through all the different uh, movies and programs and such that we watch. And the fact of the matter is, this is nothing new at all. In fact, it was exactly what was going on here in our text. Like us here in America, many of the folks who, were, who James were addressing were successful businessmen and merchants who had the keen ability of seeking out the most flourishing business centers and, uh, to do business. At this point, it might be helpful to remember that the folks that James is speaking to here are a subset of those who had professed Christ, then subsequently came under heavy persecution and thus were forced to disperse from the areas where they had flourished in business. So being who they were and knowing what they did, they're now saying, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and, and make profit. In the Greek, the text literally says, you who are now saying, indicating that the parties in this particular group were habitually engaging in the grid that the parties that they were operating through, and that grid was one of self-reliance, self-acknowledgement, and the exclusion of that which was most important. The acknowledgement of and submission to the one who was ultimately responsible for all they had and all that they would be able to accomplish. So here James confronts these folks in a very direct manner, providing both the, the cautionary rebuke, a cautionary rebuke, and the reforming instruction they needed to, to choose to live by. This evening, I want us to see that which I've just described under three headings. First is a warning, a warning against worldly and presumptuous planning. And then there's guidance towards the proper acknowledgement of providence. And then there's a concluding assessment and principle that James shares with us. So first, a warning against worldly and presumptuous planning. James says, you're sitting here. And, and I'm, you know I'm talking in my vernacular. You're sitting here talking about you going into to such and such a town. You're going to spend a year there and you will make profit. 
That's verse 13. But guess what? How can you say that when you don't even know what tomorrow will bring? Are you serious? You don't even really know what the next hour will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and, and then vanishes. That's verse 14. In his commentary on this, Doriani mentions that what we have here is presumptuous in three ways. First, it presumes we will live as long as we please. Secondly, it presumes that we can make whatever plans we please. We can go today or tomorrow. The choice is ours. And thirdly, it presumes we have the independent capacity to execute whatever plan we conceive. We declare that we will make a profit. Now here we should be reminded of our Lord's parable of the rich man found in the 12th chapter in the book of Luke. There we hear that the land of that rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. See that he's already determined how many years he has. Brothers and sisters, by any chance, did you notice how many eyes came out of his mouth? Did you hear any deference to, to whatever God has to say about it? Did you hear any deference whatsoever to the God from whom all blessings flow? And should it then surprise us that the very next words that comes out of Jesus' mouth concerning this was, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I believe it was last September that our presbytery had a specially called meeting that was held at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. That meeting dealt with two issues. One of them consisted of a great deal of deliberation. I remember there was one gentleman who was particularly involved in, in those deliberations asking questions, offering several comments, and, and, he, and he had really good insights. There was no indication whatsoever that he was about to be ill. Yet in just a little while after that meeting, well before dinner time, he was gone that same day. Likewise, it was June of last year when I met a charter member of this church at a local restaurant during the lunch hour. In the course of our conversation, I mentioned that this church would soon be celebrating its 50th anniversary. I mentioned that this church would be celebrating and would he be open to sharing his thoughts and memories via an interview. He enthusiastically said he would be most happy to participate in such an interview. One month later, that man who played a central role in me being before you right now, was gone. Again, late last year, as I was working on figuring out my time off for, for this year, I had it in my heart and therefore thought about going to visit my older brother in New York. It had been years since I saw the one who had initially stoked my love for basketball. About 10 years, well, I did, in fact, get to see him. But he was in a coffin. 
And that definitely wasn't what I had in mind. Now, I'm not implying that any of these events or interactions were absent the recognition of God's providence or his sovereignty. But I would definitely assert that they do aptly communicate just how little we do know concerning that which will be. And to therefore presume the accomplishment of anything without the acknowledgement of our dependence upon and our need of God's preservation, his power, his wisdom, and his will is patently absurd. An evidence that sin has wrecked havoc on our desire to do that which scripture has called us to. To not lean upon our own understanding, but to trust in the Lord with all our heart. To acknowledge him in all our ways and let him direct our path. To readily acknowledge him in all our ways. To acknowledge that not only is he the one who has given us all that we have, but he is also the one who establishes our way doing so according to the counsel of his perfect will. That's the very tenor of Proverbs 16:9, which says, The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. Oh, say no more, James. We hear you. What then should we do to turn this ship around? Here you might hear me alluding to that ship that's talked about in chapter 3, where James uses the ship and the small rudder that shears it and symbolically says about the tongue Steering a large ship. And so the answer comes under our second heading, guidance towards the proper acknowledgement of providence. What then should we do? In answer to that question at hand, James says, you who say today or tomorrow instead of choosing your own time, you who say such and such a, a town instead of choosing your own location, to you who say spend a year, instead of choosing your own duration of time, to you who say you will trade instead of choosing your own enterprise, and to you who say you will make a profit instead of choosing your own fortune, instead of saying all these things you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Now this is a good place for me to remind us of the reality that we are not our own, but we were bought with a price, that we are called to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And so if these things are true and they are, then not only do we have the responsibility to acknowledge God in all our ways, but we are to always be about the business of finding out what he would have us to do, not what we want to do. Listen to Stephen Runge's comments Concerning what I just said, he wrote, I do not believe that James is only talking about making presumptuous plans. He isn't encouraging us to tack on if the Lord wills to hedge our bets. Since who knows, we might just get hit by a bus before we can go and do whatever it is we were boasting about. No, instead, James is concerned with making plans for the future without ever considering or asking what God already has planned for us. This, brothers and sisters, is right in line with Ephesians 2.10, which says we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about that. We were saved by grace alone through the faith alone that we were given for God's glory alone. And to what end? To be his vessels of glory, to be his ambassadors, to be his servants. Now, let me ask you, which one of those items, vessels, ambassadors, and servants have the right to their own way? So you see, it's not just a saying of a few pithy words, if God wills, but it's a total heart's disposition that recognizes whose we are, what we are, and why we are. Those words serve as evidence that bear witness to the genuineness of one's faith. And I might add that it's precisely because of what I just said that we don't have to utter these words every single time we discuss the things we're endeavoring to do. It's a good practice to utter them often, but the greater evidence of our heart's disposition will be seen in all that we do and say. Remember what James is pushing in this book. Faith without works is dead. He's constantly pushing works. So this was not the case with those whom James had in mind in terms of doing or were addressing. And so we hear, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Even though you know that you were bought with a price, even though you know that you are to present yourself a living sacrifice, even though you know that you are to be my ambassadors to a lost and dying world, even though you know all these things to be so, and therefore like my son who said, not my will, but yours be done, you should be earnestly seeking my marching orders, my guidance, my sustenance, in spite of all that, you continue to be like those who, while coming up with their plans to build the Tower of Babel, said amongst themselves, you can see this in Genesis 11:4. they said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. It was not about God's glory. It is a height of arrogance coming from vessels that, as James has already indicated, are akin to the fog that we sometimes see in the morning. It is akin to, therefore it reminds me rather, of a house representative who after hearing another house representative read scripture turned around and said, what any religious tradition has to say concerning God's will is of no concern to this Congress. The height of arrogance. It's like a fog again when you wake up in the morning. It seems to be thick and significant. I've come across fog that it looks like, man, can I even see in front of me? Can I get through this? And in a couple hours or minutes, it's gone. They were created for one venture, but they bragged about another. May it never be said that be said about us. And as the Westminster Confession tells us, any want of conformity to God's prescription, any law given to the reasonable creature, any one of conformity to it is sin. Our only boast, brothers and sisters, as Christians, is in Christ. But here we hear James saying that these individuals were boasting in their arrogance. And so James calls them out on it, saying, all such boasting is evil. After taking a headlong approach to dealing 
with the situation, he now offers his assessment and a guiding principle. It's our final heading. I open this sermon by mentioning the fact that the umbrella on which all worldviews are allowed to thrive is secularism. And that is true. The umbrella for all godless worldviews around us today is indeed secularism. But mind you, secularism is not, secularism is not the foundation. The foundation in which all these worldviews are grounded is the vice that James has consistently spoken against in this book and what we have to guard our hearts against. The very vice it is that caused Satan to fall. It's pride, which often manifests itself in arrogance. Remember, Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. The pride of life comes from within and wants nothing to do with God. It rejects God like Pharaoh did when he refused to let God's people go. In verse 6 of this same chapter, we were told that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. May it be that we are the ones that are humble before our Lord. Now here later in the chapter, we are being exposed to the outworking of what it looks like to profess Christ to possess the knowledge of what's required of us and yet refuse to walk in that which was revealed to us, adamantly choosing instead to remain firm in our commitment to establish our own way. Psalm 37, 4 tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give us the desires of our heart. The professing Christian who doubles as a practical atheist refuses to trust that promise and thus strives to establish their own way. And that will invariably not be in conformity to God's will, and thus will be accounted as sin. That's the very tenor of what James is saying in verse 17. They knew what God required of them, but grounded in their pride, lack of faith, and self-reliance, they refused to submit themselves to what was ultimately for their good. For indeed, it said all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, not their purpose. Listen, you know who this passage aptly describes? Every last one of us, to one degree or another. We have all fallen and come short of the glory of God. None of us have it, none of us have hit the mark and thus are counted as righteous in of ourselves. Like the Apostle Paul, we are still crying out, who will deliver me from this body of death? This heart and mind that fights to have its own way in, in all my relationships. The answer, thanks be to God that he has given us our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ who died, who lived, went through all this, was tempted with all the same things that we were tempted with. Satan came and tried to give him the whole world, and he refused, using what? Scripture. He obeyed the Father at every step of the way, total conformity, did everything that we were enabled to do, raised from the dead, seated on the right hand of the Father, gave us his spirit, and now we have the ability by the power of that same spirit, to please him, 
to recognize him, to acknowledge him, and to follow in the path that he would have us to follow for his glory and to accomplish his purposes. We have the enabling power and grace to live lives, brothers and sisters, that shout, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We can say those words in confidence, knowing that we indeed have a Savior that is enabling us by the power of his Spirit to do exactly what he has commanded of us. May it be that we are never like those folks that are mentioned in this text. Unfortunately, all of us at some point will fail. But guess what? The book of Proverbs says the righteous man falls seven times, and he does what? Gets back up. The ungodly are not like that. We have the grace of our Lord to get up and to continue to serve him and to acknowledge him in all our ways. May one of our heart song, greatest heart song be that we refuse to trust in our own ways, but we will trust in the Lord and let him indeed direct our path. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus, we hear you. We are cut to the heart for that which you laid out before us is no less than the absolute truth. We have sought to establish our own way at times. We have sought to take credit for that which we have and have accomplished at times. We have on many occasions excluded the rightful author and finisher of all that we are, will ever be, and will accomplish. We are guilty as charged. So now in the face of that which is true, we beg upon those mercies which flow from your veins. We beg upon you as we have called on you as our Lord and our Savior, that you would indeed continue to sanctify us, to mold us and shape us and take us away from people who would continually drawn back into the ways of the old man, but that we would glorify you as our King and our Lord, that we would submit our spirits to yours, that we would cry out, not my will, but yours be done. Grab hold of us, dear Lord. Keep us in your arms. Cause us to see the light of your word. Cause us to walk in it. Have your spirit. Move us in ways that would cause us to acknowledge you in every single thing that we do, in every single way that we act. Do all these things. Glorify yourself in and through us so that others might see and be drawn to you. And our witness might be, look at our Lord. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our all in all. All that we do, all that we are, all that we think proceeds from him and the goodness that flows from his throne. Would you give us hearts and minds that would think that way and articulate those thoughts in our spheres of influence all to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.